The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. <laughs> Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion, and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Jamin Ball, and today we have a very special roundtable episode for you to celebrate the life of the one and only Mr. John Barnes. Though we're coming together for a sad reason, I am incredibly honoured to be joined by several iconic Michael Jackson studio collaborators, Brad Buxer, Matt Forger, and Brad Sundberg. I'll be introducing our guests shortly, but first, I want to share a little bit about John's life. John Barnes was a force in the music industry for over 50 years. Born in Watts, California, he worked as musical director for The Miracles in Detroit and then headed back to Los Angeles, working for Motown, which would launch an amazing career. John was a musician, recording his own music since the early 70s, a songwriter, producer, and arranger. He worked with just about every major musician one can imagine, but much of his career was focused on the king of pop, Michael Jackson. He first teamed up with the Jackson family in 1976, working with Jermaine Jackson, and connected with Michael in 1982 after having worked on a project with Marlon and Janet. Michael and John's meeting would launch a long and productive professional, creative, and personal relationship. The two owned a company together called Experiments in Sound, and John became a central part of Michael's creative team. Early on, Barnes worked on the Jackson's Victory album and worked extensively on Captain EO, which both Matt Forger and Brad Sundberg were a part of as well. Barnes co-wrote with Michael the song, We Are Here to Change the World, and his work of creating new sounds with the Synclavia was revolutionary and was a massively important part of both this film project and his general recording with Michael Jackson. During the bad album recording, Barnes worked at Havenhurst alongside Bill Bottrell and Matt Forger, While often dubbed the B-team and noted for creating demos, while Quincy Jones and Bruce Sudian did the main work on the album, that really was just not the case, as we discussed in depth with John on episode 89 of the MJ cast. The Havenhurst team was central to the creation of the album, producing nearly final versions of many of the songs. We know this not only through the words of the collaborators, but through the experiences of researchers like friend of the show Damien Shields, who's travelled to the US Copyright Office and listened with his own ears to unreleased demos of songs like Smooth Criminal and The Way You Make Me Feel, which sound remarkably complete and similar to the versions that ended up on the album. Barnes would also go on to have roles on Michael's later albums as well, including Dangerous, History and Blood on the Dance Floor. He continued his work with Michael through the very end of Jackson's career, even going to Bahrain in 2006 to work on Michael's charity single there, I Have This Dream. Barnes, who passed away after a long illness on March 19, 2022, was not only an amazing musician and visionary, but he was passionate about humanitarian issues. This was a driving force in his close relationship with Michael and included important creative work, such as co-writing the song 
We Are the World. He was full of heart and full of genuine passion for the art he created, sometimes at the cost of not getting the credit he deserved. We hope to rectify that in whatever ways we can in today's episode. I also want to make special note here of my co-host, Elise Capron, who has done an immense amount of work putting this episode together and was actually due to host it herself. She's a super busy super mum and ultimately wasn't able to make the recording. So I'm subbing in for her to fill the role as host. Elise actually had the pleasure of meeting John at one of Brad Sundberg's In the Studio with MJ seminars and even befriended him and his daughter. It was Elise that really made our career encompassing interview with John possible and indeed this show today. Guys, I could go on further all about John's accomplishments, but from here, I'd like to introduce our amazing guests and get their memories and stories of personally working with John. First of all, we have Brad Buxar, who worked with Michael for 20 years from the Dangerous album onwards through Invincible and who became one of Michael's closest production, music and songwriting collaborators. He was also a musical director for both the Dangerous and History World Tours. He was a close personal friend with Michael into the final years of his life, and you can hear Brad's amazing stories about their creative relationship and friendship on episode 100 of the MJ Cast. Brad, welcome back to the MJ Cast. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? I'm good. It's so good to be here, especially with Sunberg and Forger and you. Um, <laughs> it's just wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's it's absolutely our pleasure. And, you, you know, you were talking a little bit earlier about how the three of you are actually not only worked with Michael in the studio, obviously, but gone on to form this incredibly close friendship between the three of you, which I can really feel in our pre-show chat. I mean, the, the thing about it is that Michael wasn't very close with many people at all. And so you can count him on one hand. And he was super close to Matt Forger and to Brad Sundberg and to me. And obviously John Barnes, of course. And it's just a, so when I get together with, I talk to Matt Forger and Brad Sundberg all the time. And, and when we get together, it's family. It's a, couldn't be a closer knit group. I'll, I'll second that. It's just awesome. Love it. Love it. And and also, we're here with uh, somebody who hasn't been on the MJ cast before, but I feel incredibly lucky uh, that you're here, Matt Forger, whom worked with Michael uh, starting with the Thriller album and he and was credited as a technical engineer and continued to work on just about every project Michael did. He was also a massive instrumental role in Captain EO, doing a lot of the work there to build the theater for that film. Matt, it's your first time on the MJ Cast. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. I'm. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here on this uh, occasion to uh, share the uh, the airwaves uh, with my good friends uh, Brad and Brad. Uh, it's uh, it, it's an honor, and and thank you so much. Thank you. And of course, last but not least, really, really Brad Sundberg, who's no stranger <laughs> to the MJ cast. Uh, <laughs> you were Michael Jackson's technical director and studio engineer for 18 years and also handled the sound and lighting installations at Neverland. Brad Sundberg joined Michael's team during Captain EO and was involved in the recording sessions of every album from Bad to Blood on the Dance Floor. These days, Brad runs the seminar series in the studio with MJ, which happens around the world. These are amazing events where he brings Jackson family collaborators together for storytelling-based events, and these are just starting up again, and I highly, highly encourage listeners to attend those. You can also hear Brad on one of our very earliest MJCast episodes back in 2015, episode 15. Thank you so much for believing in us way back then, Brad. Welcome back to the MJCast. Thank you for joining us. How are you doing? 
episode 15 mm-hmm. man <laughs> yeah we were like using like uh toilet paper tubes to talk into back then so that's that's amazing well ha- have me back sometime i'd love to hang with you guys let's do it let's do it <laughs> that, no th- thank you for the kind introduction i do have to say something not to jump in ju- just to i mean you mentioned Captain EO. Matt Forger did Captain EO. I, mm. I brought cheeseburgers in and uh, <laughs> and made sure the Coke machine was stocked. Uh, Matt Forger did Captain EO top to bottom. So I, I don't I don't want there to be any confusion. Um, he he was the uh, masterful, remarkable engineer behind that project, and and Michael absolutely loved Matt. Absolutely, yeah. But thank you, thank you for having. All of us. When we'd record, it was the Matt Forger show. So it was the Matt Forger yeah, show. <laughs> Needless to say, we are so incredibly humbled and honored to have all of you joining us. Uh, you're incredible people, and each of you had a relationship with John Barnes, who is our focus today. And the rest of the episode will focus on on your stories and memories of John. So let's get started. And as we dive in, I just want to say uh, thank you to the whole MJ Cast team, as well as some researchers there that have helped us out putting some of these talking points together. John Cameron of JC's Musicology. Damien Shields and Andy Healy for their contributions to the episode as well. So let's let's start off going around the table. I'd like to ask how and when each of you first met John and what your first impressions of him were. So how about we kick things off with you, Matt? Would you be able to talk about your first meeting with John and, and your first impressions? Oh, uh, gosh. Um, that is a good one because uh, the point in time when I met John Barnes was following, I want to say it was following Thriller. Uh, It may or may not have been before the Victory album. If not before, it was immediately after. uh, Because there were a series of uh, projects that we started with. I met John one day when I got a call to, uh, Michael wanted to record a song that, that he had written in the studio. I showed up and uh, John Barnes was there. I can't remember now if we were starting the project uh, called Centipede for Michael's sister, Rebe, mm-hmm. or there was another song that was uh, also worked on in that same, roughly in that same time frame, And that was a song that Michael wrote, which uh, Jennifer Holiday recorded called I'm the One. I believe John Barnes uh, was the person who uh, had developed that track and did that recording. That was with Bruce Wedeen. I did Centipede myself with Michael. And uh, there was a series of these projects which kind of all flowed one into the other after uh, myself and John Barnes and, and Michael Jackson all uh, ended up working at Westlake Studios. And uh, what we were doing was we were working in the, the same room that was the room that Thriller had been uh, recorded in. So it was a very familiar surrounding to myself and to Michael. And there was just a, a series of these these projects that just kept flowing. John Barnes was a part of, of all of these series of, of of things i mean he was he was the guy he uh he had the hand on technology 
He also was an excellent uh, musician in terms of the keyboard, uh, because if you play a keyboard, then with synthesis, you can basically play any instrument. He also was very good at programming. At that time, we were using uh, drum machines. So he was a hands-on with, with basically the three of us were the team, and, and we could do a complete record with just the three of us in the room. Mm. And that's what we did. Hey, Matt, what were you recording on when you guys would do that? Well, we were recording 24-track analog, 2-inch. Okay. That was the, that was the old 3M. That was the, those were the th- old 3Ms, which were... <laughs> those, uh, those 3M79s are the best sounding. They're the, they're the they crappiest sound so machines. Good. Yeah, they're the worst built machines ever with that Isolute. <laughs> they, they're, they tear the hell out of the tape, but boy, do they sound they good. They sound so good. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. They, they were uh, maintenance intensive, to say Yeah, that. Yeah, remember the, re- the remotes on those things look like a toy? Yeah, it's, it's just, <laughs> but it's just it's crazy. It's remarkable, and, and that was the thing about Westlake Studios, uh, was that not only did they have these very good machines, these uh, 3M M79s, for multi-tracks, but also they went in and they modded the tape machines as well as the technicians had modded the Harrison console that we were using in that room. Was so, it a Harrison 10? A Harrison 10? No, that no. was the, uh, a 32C, I believe. Okay, okay. 4032. 4032. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was a 40-input 32-series uh, uh, console. And so all of the stuff in these studios, uh, Westlake, uh, the Westlake technicians had had their hands in the circuitry of to just make it sound uh, remarkable. Well, not just that, Matt, but Glenn Phoenix, the owner of Westlake, was one of the electrical designers of the 3M tape machine. I think it's like... It's like his patent or something. Wow. He, he designed the, the switching logic. Right. Which is the thing that when you're recording and playing back uh, the, the tracks of the machine will automatically uh, do <laughs> poor, it. Poor Jamin. You, you, you. <laughs> I'm, I'm sucking it all in. I'm sucking it all in. Here's the thing. I, I have a 3M79. I, I bought it from Valgaray. Do you? And, uh, yeah. And uh, – and I, I have the Studer and I have the MTR-92, but the uh, Val, he would put this blonde Formica on all his machines. So it's an interesting looking machine, but to get CellSync working on it, I had to have a guy come over. And I think this is what Matt is saying. Every single channel had to be modded. Right. So you could do CellSync. I can't remember what he did, but it didn't do what normal tape machines need to be able to do. It was the automatic function of the auto switching of to CellSync. For punching. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and it, it, and and uh, the guy's name was Corey. I really uh, forget his last name at, at Tech in LA, but he did channel by channel. He did it in it took a day, but yeah, the machine had to be modded to make it modded out just to make it work hmm. like a like a functional machine. But uh, yeah, the machines they just sound terrific, and the out of out of any machine built, they're the worst built machines on the planet, and they sound <laughs> the best. You know, it's just amazing. Matt, during during those uh, those early days, were were you and John using that Lin, that Lin nine thousand or whatever? Yes, we're it was? using a, a Lin nine thousand, <laughs> the, uh, the red, the red one, the red one. Oh my god! <laughs> no, we <laughs> actually had one that predated the red one, uh, but the Lin nine thousand was a combination drum machine and sequencer. It was all built into one device, and what you- <laughs> they they never they they never worked. In other words, I had a Lin nine thousand. There were always problems with them, and uh, but that was all all that there there was a Lin two right which is followed by the Lin 9000. And the Lin 9000 uh, was, I, I'm, 
I have one sitting right behind me in the in, in the studio here. And uh, Michael had this red Lin 9000. I remember when I first walked into Westlake in 89 and there wasn't a scratch on it. And it was a, just a gorgeous, gorgeous, uh, bright red Lin drum machine. Do you guys remember that? Oh, I do. Yeah, that was because the the owner of the Lynn Company, I forgot his name now. Roger um, Lynn. Roger. Roger. Yeah, Roger. 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 <laughs> he called me up and he said, look, we're making uh, one for Michael. Uh, what color would it, should it be? And I said, well, Michael likes red. <laughs> that's, why, that's why he ended up right. with a red one. Right. But when you dealt with the owner of the company and the designer of the product, uh, the ones that we used, he made sure that they operated. Uh, Actually worked. They worked, yeah. Really, really well. <laughs> right, right. As, as the revisions of the, from the, the very first ones that were made uh, came across, they did a lot of revisions that really, you know, they, they just had to do software updates to, in hardware, firmware updates to, to get them to perform at, at a studio level. Just a technical addition, but um, remember Bruce Forat? Him and his brother would take the Lin 9000s, they bought them out, and then you could put different sounds in each fader. And it was, it was just kind of interesting. And you'd open them up and look at what the mods were. And I've never seen so many jumper wires. And I, I don't know how <laughs> they did it, but that was crazy back then. These days, everything is neat and it's on chips. And you know, back then, it was just a massive amount of wires and parts and stuff. Brad Sundberg, talk to me about when you first met John and what your first impressions were. So it's kind of funny, Jamin, because of of the three of us, and I'm I'm going to be totally honest with this. I know Forger worked with uh, with Barnes more than any of us, but I know Buxer did also. You mentioned the Bad Album, and I never, I think we've talked about this before that you know calling it the B Team is is disrespectful and not mm-hmm. not right. But those demos did come out of Havenhurst, not demos. I mean those those amazing songs, and I know John was very instrumental over there. And and I'm just I'm just now wait a minute I probably I'm sure I met John during EO, so that's probably when I first encountered John, but I wasn't really in the control room back then. Just being honest, so it was more on the bad album, and we could write a whole book on this. But kind of that transition from Havenhurst to Westlake, you know, from uh, Matt and uh, and Billy and uh, and John going to Quincy and Bruce, there there was. I think it's safe to say a little bit of a little bit of friction. And so that's kind of when I met John or when I really started working with him in the studio, because he would come to some of those bad sessions and John was electric. I mean, he was he was bouncing off the walls and and I mean talented and uh but I I don't I think a lot of his pre production work had already been done over at Havenhurst. Am I is that a safe assumption, Matt? Uh, and it's on the songs that originated at Havenhurst, yes. So we we didn't we didn't work with John that much on the Quincy Bruce bad album, if if that makes sense. I mean, John was there and he definitely laid down some parts, but I think a lot of the creative ideas had already happened uh, with Matt over at Havenhurst. That's correct. Let let me just add something to because you guys were around a lot longer than me. You guys came in way be- I didn't come in until 89. And I was very close. Billy Patrell brought me and I was very close to Billy. And I may be getting this wrong, but my understanding was that, is, is that John was coming up with all these great things and then they record them. And, and, and you know how much I love Bruce. Um, sure. 
this stuff would go to Bruce and Quincy and they'd re-record the, the parts. They'd keep them identical, but they'd re-record them. And, and uh, I always remember hearing that, and that's kind of weird, um, where Bruce and Quincy, the modus operandi or whatever it's called, is you always use the very best players no matter what. Billy Betrell worked differently, which is basically he loved the homegrown stuff, meaning that right. Cap- capture a moment. Yeah, just capture the moment. So you'd have John doing these unbelievably great parts. And then my understanding was the friction that maybe that you're talking about, Sunberg, is you would go to Bruce and Quincy and the parts didn't change. They just get re-recorded, which is weird, you know, but that that's the way that's the way those guys worked a lot. Nothing against them. I, I totally get it. It's, it's their prerogative to do that. But, um, you know, there's, uh, well, to use one of Bruce's words, and I, and I say this with pure respect, but sure. I think John might've been, I think some of his stuff at times could be what Bruce might call just a, a little bit raggedy. And I mean, it, it had loaded with emotion and, and, and loaded with vibe and, and oh, vibe and emotion. And yeah. Yeah. But but they wanted, like you say, then they'd want to bring in, you know, Picaro or uh, yeah, whoever was the top player, Monica, you know, yeah, whoever yeah. to to come in and and just smooth out the rough edges. But John was the one that was coming up with the parts. Absolutely, hundred you know? percent agree. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fantastic way to put the relationship into perspective. So so thank you very much. And we're going to dig into that a little bit more as we go through the the discussion. I just did want to hear from you as well, Brad Buxer, about your first meeting with John and what your first impressions were. It was pretty hysterical. Um, There were two first meetings, and I'm not sure which one came first. So we go up to the ranch, and this is just – uh, to me, it's hysterical. Um, <laughs> so we get, we got that a few right of us. This one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's me, Sumberg, Forger, Bruce Wedeen, and John Barnes. <laughs> Only John never showed up. <laughs> so and Billy. That, I think Billy was there. That's what I would, Sumberg, that's what I was, was Billy there or not? I can't remember. I think so. Forger, was was Bill there? Do you remember? I'm I'm, I'm thinking not. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't, if he was there, boy, he, he sure wasn't very noisy because i don't remember him at all being there my recollection is that that he wasn't okay so here's the thing it's 89 and we've all just started the dangerous album and we were all handed a notebook you know a three uh, ring binder and it just showed who the core people were and it was uh brad sumberg and matt forger billy petrell me bruce swedeen and i guess john I, i don't know i don't remember i'm sure john barnes was in the notebook too. But at any rate, we go up to the ranch, right? At 11 AM. And it's, it's just, dude, there's Swedeen, there's me, there's Forger, there's Sunberg, and there's no John Barnes. And it's 11 o'clock. We're up at the ranch. And the very first thing we did is we go into the main dining room of the uh, house and the house wasn't this huge house. It was about 11 or 12,000 square feet. It was all brown wood, beautiful, but it wasn't like this mansion. You had four bungalows where people would stay when they were visiting. So we're, we're all in the dining room on this elegant brown table, and we were served this big rib thing. It was kind of <laughs> gross. And do you guys remember that? It was like this big hunk of meat on a bone sitting in front of you. And so, yeah, I would just rather have like a hamburger or a cheeseburger or something. But anyway, you had this big piece of meat in front of you. And then we, we had lunch. We did activities. I remember – 
what are those things where you have a wire across a, a small canyon and you put your hands on it and you slide oh, yeah, over it? Yeah, a little zip line. Yeah. Zip line. Yeah, we had that. I remember Bruce was the only one who didn't do the zip line because he was just not, not physically up for it. And so we go through the whole day, right? And it's like four o'clock. It's like, you know, we've done a whole day of activity. And then John shows up and and he missed the entire day. And we're all getting ready to leave. And so he asked me what was my first meeting with him. That was sort of it. And it was just <laughs> showing up five hours late. Yeah, it was five hours late and the day was done. But he, uh, it was almost that he was sort of bigger than all of us and he could get away with it. And that was sort of interesting. It was almost like, it was almost okay. Nobody thought anything of it. It was right. just kind of funny, right? Then around the same time, and I don't know if this happened before or after the thing at the ranch that we just talked about, I guess it must have been Westlake because record one would have been later on. I'm not sure. I'm there, there's Michael, and there's John Barnes. And this is where I saw the relationship with Michael and John. And John was edgy, right? And John was a little bit cocky and confident and stuff. And Michael is this very soft, not soft in a bad way. I mean, just sort of, he's, he's not loud, right? Right. He's kind of very soft-spoken and doesn't like aggressive stuff, you know? And, and so I was... Not that John's aggressive, but they were very distinct. Right. Different personalities. They were different personalities. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why John was so good with Michael, because people don't need to be to behave the same. You know, a lot of times the richness in life is when you have diversity like that, where you have somebody who's edgy like that. But John was definitely, I noticed this edge. And I, and I, was, uh, I was just sort of watching how he interacted with Michael. It was very interesting, you know. So... And those are, those are my first two experiences with John Barnes. Now, the thing is, is this, I know how John Barnes worked with Billy and I know how talented he was and I know how he worked with Fortune. I know his role and it was huge. And I also need to say humbly, I didn't work with him the way that Matt and Brad did. He, basically, John Barnes did keyboards and then I did keyboards. So I, I, right. I, I yeah. So, so in other words, John, I guess, went from 82 to 89, and then I came in in 89. And, and when I was doing Dangerous, John wasn't, you know, uh, John had done bad and, and all, all, all the stuff that I, I didn't do. But anyway, they, you guys have far more experience with John. The only thing I know about John is I know how, how immensely talented he was and how everybody said he'd just go in the studio and he would come up with the most amazing parts. And I heard that from everyone. Right. Yeah. Just to... Right. Michael doesn't work with people if they're not special. There's no way he's going to have you in the room. Michael's never going to have you in the room because you want to be there right. or because you're, you're good friends. It, Michael is pure business. And then if you're able to bring something to him on that business level, which means a creative record-making level, and you happen to hit it off with him personally, then you're in the room. Right. That's how it works. Were you guys all aware when you first were meeting John, were you aware of his background and what he had done before? Did you know that he'd worked with people like Bill Withers and had such experience in the industry? At some point, I might write an article about this, but I was so young, and, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but I was like 23 uh, when I kind of eased, you know, started to meet Michael and work with, with those guys. And I was so focused on learning the gear 
taking care of Bruce, learning Bruce's ways. And over the years, if I could do those 10 years over again, and the people that we crossed paths with, not just on Michael Sessions, but at Westlake, I mean, Westlake was just this melting pot of talent, and especially a lot of those older guys, I would do anything to go do some of those sessions again and uh, know, have a bit more of a musical history that I have now. So, yeah, I mean, even as I look back at John's discography right now in front of me, it's just crazy. And and I, uh, I, I, I wish I would have known more then. When I met him, I knew of his immediate background. His immediate background before uh, coming to work with Michael was uh, he had been involved with the Pointer Sisters and uh, Richard Perry, a lot of the productions Richard Perry had done. Uh, he was on a lot of the, the Pointer Sister records. So I knew he came from a, a, a production standpoint as being like like a major player with, with major artists. I didn't know the extent of his full background. There was an interesting uh, music video. It's the uh, uh, one of the Pointer Sisters uh, music videos. And it's w- when they cut to the, the piano part, it's John Barnes playing piano, <laughs> awesome. uh, which awesome. uh, I found uh, – only, you know, much later because he was so skilled and, and he would say occasionally, oh, yeah, I worked with so-and-so or such and such. Uh, he wasn't a braggart about uh, people that he had worked with or, or people that he knew specifically. So, Matt, I got a question about the uh, the Synclavier. Back then, that was a synthesizer, right? There was a Fairlight and the Synclavier. And uh, did he bring his own Synclavier in or would I know Winston – had a synclavier how did all that work did you guys record with the synclavier back then uh what happened was we were working at the havenhurst studio uh this was uh after we had started uh, the bad project at that time he was using a fairlight okay and then someone told michael you you just you know the, the latest greatest thing that you must have is a synclavier it was Michael Synclavier, and uh, John Barnes uh, went to the Synclavier office and uh, took lessons on the programming of it and the operations of it. And that was just, I believe, at the point in the Synclavier's development where they had not only the FM synthesis, but they had recently sampled the disc. It had to sample the disc. They didn't have the full recording to disc because there was right. a time limitation factor on the sampling to disc, but there was a uh, a fairly large library of sounds available. And then, of course, your manipulative ability on the, on the keyboard to change the sounds. John didn't get heavily into the FM synthesis uh, programming, but on the sampling thing, there was a lot of that that, that he did at that point. I mean, it's funny because the, the main thing with Michael is sampling. Everything's about sampling because uh, Michael always wanted original sounds. Right. He he would never want sounds from a just a, a regular library. He would always want to make his own sounds. So I can just picture John and then with the Synclavier, how much Michael must have loved that because uh, that's how Michael worked. It was all about samples. Right. Yeah, we did, we did a lot of that work. Let's cut now to a clip that we're going to play from uh, our interview with John Barnes. John was on episode 89 of the MJ cast. And this is him talking about working with Michael. 
you listen to interviews with Michael, especially during the 90s, uh, when he's talking about working with people like Rodney and Teddy, he says things like, I want sounds on the record that nobody's ever heard before. I'll send them out to, you know, junkyards to find equipment to bang around on to create patterns that have never been heard before. Would you suggest that this early work with you in, in the 80s is really Michael developing that passion for unique sound that hadn't been heard before. What it, yes, and what we did at that time is what he was asking them to do. We already did that. Yeah. I mean, I could go at some point in some of the things I'm documenting, I could go song for song and say, this is what this is, this is what this is, here's where it came from, here's how we developed it. I mentioned something at the seminar that Elise was at where I was saying that it's so interesting looking at some of these films. One guy was talking about a hand clap machine that he used on a song and there were no hand claps on there. We made those things out of these little miniature firecrackers called bang snaps, you know, and it's just so funny to me to hear all these people making claims and saying all this stuff. And, you know, Michael always pushed people to um, raise the bar. So whatever he was saying to Teddy and whatever he was saying to Rodney Jerkins, if you talk to Bill Luttrell or myself, and even early Matt Forger, Matt Forger really didn't stay with us that long. But even during that time, those were all the things that we did. I mean, pursuing all kinds. We became almost like, a combination of a sound effects business combined with Foley, combined with music. Foley is exactly the word that was popping in my head as you were talking. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking about this idea of sound creation as just being so creative and imaginative with your approach to that. That's really interesting. Boy, that couldn't be more. Uh, I'll tell you something. Michael would always say, Brad, bring me sounds the ears never heard before you know, over and over. And all, Michael would always say, drying in your face. He hated reverb. And the thing what John Barnes is saying is absolutely how it was. Michael would demand that all the sounds were homemade. You know, nothing could be in some drum library. Everything had to be homemade. And he would, you'd take sticks and rocks. You'd take all, you'd make your own sounds. Like what John was saying about the hand claps, that's exactly how it was. All the sounds were made. They were homemade. You would make the sounds in the, weirdest ways you know it's like there was no thought process whatsoever as to like oh we need this particular sound so we're gonna do it this way it was never like that there was no thought process at all it's like let's try this bang record it oh my god that's great and you'd lay the sounds out on a keyboard and michael would sit right next to you and i'm sure this is how it was with john because this is how it was this is how michael worked sit next to him with the keyboard with with me it was the emulator three with john it must have been the, the Fairlight or the Sinclair, and you just bang out the percussion you lay all the sounds out and you take certain sounds and you'd lay them on different keys and have different volumes on them. That was how, how we did the percussion for Will You Be There. And um, the the end result was very unique sounds that were completely Michael's. In, in other words, Michael's and John's, Michael's and mine, whatever, where they weren't part of any other record or any other library. And that's exactly what John's saying. It was part Foley. It was part sound effects generation and it was music. That's exactly how it was. Yep. He couldn't have, he couldn't have said it better. 
Guys, and, and I think I'd like to hear from Matt um, first on, on this one, but I'd love all of you to respond. But what is it about John that you think that drew Michael to him? What did they share in terms of like musical shorthand? Just this innate, deep uh, emotional response and feeling. Uh, because, you know, that's one of the, in fact, that's, that's one of the lines that uh, is a demarcation point in uh, Captain EO is when the uh, Michael is confronted by the evil queen. And he says, uh, we have been uh, brought here uh, to bring you a gift. And the an evil queen says, gift, what kind of gift? Uh, something to that effect. And he says, one, not uh, something not only to hear, but to feel. And he turns around and he points to the, the, uh, his, his fellow uh, compatriots there in the, in the spaceship. And they stumble and fall and they're trying to get together to, 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 to play a song. But they both would feel the music and they would feel these things at a very deep emotional level. And John knew the chords that Michael would respond to, uh, much as uh, as uh, Brad Buxer did. Uh, he, he, he was trained in such a way as to know chords and variations and voicings and keys, modulation, and he could bring those things to the table that Michael would respond to because these are the musical elements that really create emotion. Now, if I can speak for a moment to the last topic, when you said the thing about the the, uh, the sounds of, of Michael always wanting uh, new sounds, uh, what I did at that time when we were at Havenhurst was at that time, the only portable digital recorder that was available was a thing called a Sony F1. And what you had to do is that was the processor, but you needed a portable VCR. So it was either a beta or a VHS, and I built, designed and built a system. Brent Averill built a portable mic pre, and uh, I got uh, this uh, system of designing a, a stereo microphone. by, by Matt, Matt, was that the mic that you were going out to South Africa or to Africa to record Nelson Mandela? No, that, that, was, that was a different microphone. Okay. I actually did design this microphone out of two uh, uh, stereo uh, AKG uh, microphones. And, and built a hand grip on it. And I had these two things slung over my shoulders. I had the processor. I had the the uh, portable VCR. Uh, I had the, the portable mic pre with its battery pack. And uh, I would go out. There was one day that uh, Michael said, come on, come on, we, we're, we're going to go over to my brother's house. And we went to Tito's house. And he went through Tito's house and his garage as well with a piece of wood in his hand, striking everything <laughs> that you can imagine. <laughs> well, first, we went into the, the foyer. I can just picture and, it. And there was a stairway, and he started banging on the spindles on the handrail. Right. Then he was on the wall. Then he was on the floor. And, and after we went through part of the house, then he went up. He goes, oh, my brother's got some cars in the back. So we go into a, a, a garage that's in the back. Now his brother Tito collects antique model tees and he's out there and he's banging on the fenders and on the doors and on the, the <laughs> sure Tito would have loved that. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, Oh my goodness. If uh, Tito only knew that Mike was out here with a 
hunk of wood banging and, and Matt, Matt, that's the thing that that I was saying. It's like Michael never put any thought into any of this. It was just uh, it was just creative. It was like let's try this. It's, yeah, it's like he get the sounds that he would want, but it was never strategized. It was just like let's go in this room and start banging on stuff. What it was was it was exploration and discovery. Yeah, and you, yeah. didn't, you didn't limit yourself. No, it was just. I mean, I cannot even tell the number of times that I did that with Michael on, on different occasions, on different songs, but he would be in the studio and start banging on something and he'd get, Oh, hurry up, get a microphone, record the sound of this. And, and it might <laughs> right, be right. Him with a stick of wood hitting a stack of magazines or newspapers. And right. he knew that that sound would fit into something that he was imagining in his mind in a vision of how that sound could be incorporated. That was a constant process. And yes, we did that before these other guys who came along later. I did that with John Barnes. And then John Barnes uh, would take the sounds that I had recorded and we transfer them into the Synclavier. He would edit them and, and play them for Michael. And then Michael would go, oh, I, I really like that one. That one's really good. And then, you know, he would build rhythms with them in a combination right. of, of drums, uh, drum sounds. We'd, we'd strike anything in the studio. So you guys were, you guys were sequencing with the, with the Lin 9000 then, right? No, that was actually with the Synclavier. Okay. Okay. So John was, uh, it sounds like John was pretty heavy into the sync. Was he able to sequence from that? Oh, yes. He was okay. very, very adept at it. Okay. So Matt, who, do you remember a guy named Winston? I believe I do. Okay, and uh, I know he was a Sinclair guy, but was there at least in the late '90s when I came aboard. But um, he was on the scene only a very brief period of time. I see. Okay, so it sounds like John didn't need him. It sounds like John was just able to run the Sinclair himself. Oh, absolutely. Which pretty, yeah, which is pretty heavy. That's a, that's a that's a complicated machine. It's a beast. Yeah. Well, and then when we started the Bad Album, then we had Chris Carell. Well, right, 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 right. There was actually a transition during Captain Neo from John Barnes to Chris Carell. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I know exactly what Matt's talking about with you know clacking uh, pieces of wood against piano benches and showers. And that's how he worked. Yeah. But then, remember on the history album, remember we brought that kid in. Was his name Scott? And his whole job, <laughs> he had his own <laughs> little studio, that little brick studio, and. Didn't we give marching orders? Just do sounds. <laughs> yeah, he was a New York kid. He was a New York yeah. kid who who was uh, his name Scott. I remember that he was a, he was a street. Yeah, guy. he was like a real street uh, musician thing. Yeah, and and we and I mean, my we had sounds coming in. I don't know how we did this because there really wasn't much of an internet back then, but people just knew Michael wanted crazy sounds. But Scott, I can't remember his last name, but. Yeah, he was just making sounds. Well, Sunberg, even re even remember that's what Chuck remember Bruce brought Chuck Wild in, right? And that's all Chuck did. Well, yeah, and, and transitions. We were doing a bunch of transitions too. Just and Steve Picaro did as well, right? So in a sense, that you know, you you'd take that chronology back, you know, to the uh, the Old Testament of Michael, and you've got you know John Barnes doing foley and creating those kind of foley sounds. And the thing is, is that I don't know how much people really understand how how important sounds were to Michael, and what a unbelievable craftsman Michael was. You work with other artists like Stevie or different people, and they're they're brilliant musicians, but 
as far as the craftsmanship, I've never met anybody who, who will craft a song the way Michael will. Right. Examples like the bass line to Billie Jean, where there's two basses, one, you know, one on top of the other. And when we did They Don't Care About Us, his, the hands-on with percussion that he did, it, it's just people don't realize how... Oh, just the sound of a clap of a yeah of a, of a snare drum. I mean, it, it was not ran, it was not random. It was not random. All. No, Michael Michael was more meticulous with sound development and craftsmanship than anyone I've ever seen in my life. And John, from John's interview, when he listened to him talk, that's exactly how it was. It's exact. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I agree. Oh my god! I mean, yeah. it was so, it was so great to hear John's voice again. But yeah, going going back to that, uh, not just being a, an amazing songwriter but also understanding how Michael was driven by specific sounds. Yeah. Two things I'll mention. I've just been feverishly trying to find this on YouTube as you guys were talking, but on the history album, there's there's an interview with a guy who worked on They Don't Care About Us, mix engineer Leslie Braithwaite. It's a really funny interview because he's talking about being given instructions that he's really confused by, like Michael and people telling him really vague things like, I love the way it's sounding, but I want you to go out and get more sticks. The song needs more sticks. <laughs> and this guy's like confused by what that means, but he just keeps trying to find these percussive sort of stick sounds that he's bringing back in all the time. <laughs> well, I mean, here's, here's the thing with They Don't Care About Us. Everyone did their parts on different songs, but They Don't Care About Us, that was me and Michael day after day sitting in front of the emulator. There's another great thing that somebody picked up recently, a friend of the show, uh, Christina. She travels to Neverland a little bit and walks around Neverland, the property, and she she was walking around the outskirts of Neverland and came across this sort of rusty cattle gate on the border and she opened it and closed it and said to us, wow, this this sound sounds ridiculously like the opening sound effect to the song Invincible on the album Invincible. Right. And I played them back to back, like I made a video of it and put it on our Instagram and it doesn't just sound similar, it sounds exactly the same. Hmm. That's that's how he would work, though. You know, he you'd capture sound, and the next thing it would be on the record. All the sounds were organic. That that's incredible. You know, that's exactly yeah. Probably the correlation that you're seeing is is totally real. That's exactly how we would work. You'd you'd have a screen come down in the studio, like a projector screen, and it would have a motor bringing the screen down, and he'd go capture that and we'd record <laughs> it, and it would be. It become part of a, a the opening for a track or something, right? Like that. Yeah, I, I got to ask. This just came into my head. It's a bit of an aside, but in the film, the documentary, this is it. Michael Jackson describes the sound effect at the start of the way you make me feel as a growl, and I have always wondered what that sound effect is. Could someone fill me in here? <laughs> I just got a funny story with that. Jonathan Moffat is one of the greatest drummers of all time, and David Williams would always. Jonathan Moffat sometimes had trouble starting the way you make me feel. They had this pretty intense uh, drum fill. And there's nothing that Jonathan could do, but David Williams would make fun of the growl saying it scared Jonathan. So I, I just I was, I was thinking about that. It's so hysterical. Uh, Matt, Matt yeah. what do, you, do you remember Matt? Is it like a, a lion roar or something? Or growl, I, I, I believe that that was something that was a sound of, I, I can't, say specifically, but uh, that was something that, that was a modified warped sound that, uh, that came from the Synclavier. It, it might have been some kind of an engine or a motor noise. I think, yeah, I think that was a Chris Carell thing. Cause, and we called it we called it a growl, yeah. But yeah, yeah Swadeen yeah. probably would have said it was his, his Great Dane or something, but but no, I think, yeah, I think that was a Synclav thing. 
Cool. Yeah, and, and that probably was something that was uh, – it wasn't a, an, an initial thing. That was more like a, a finishing touch that came along. Right. But that goes right over the opening drum fill of the way you make me feel. Right. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. I just want to ask you guys also about Michael's musicality and songwriting and to what extent you think it grew or changed because of John's involvement. Well, I think I think what uh, John was was he was an extension of Michael's mind, his musical uh, vision, because Michael would very often have ideas and he when you would work with him, especially if you were the musician, whether it was John Barnes or, or Brad Buxer or some of these other people who would, would sit in the position of being the musician. You could be a guitarist. You could be a keyboardist. Michael would sit and talk to you and talk through what he wanted to hear. He would kind of explain it, and he'd talk through an explanation. He'd say, I wanted to start on this quarter in this place. This is something, you know, Brad Buxer can speak to. As you would play, he would say, oh, yeah, I like that chord, but that's that's not quite the right uh, Voicing, like, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or was it? Should it be? Should it be a minor chord? Should it be a suspend? Should it? Should it? Should there be this some other inflection? Whoever that person was, countless times I was there, and Michael would say, "Yeah," and then it goes to this other chord, and, and then he'd say, "Well, that's 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 kind of the chord, but it's not quite right." And then you would go through different voicings of it or, or variations. Then when you would hit it, you can say, "That's it," and then you would, you know. In this case, John Barnes would would play what he had up to that point with that chord, and then Michael would go yes, and then by doing that, the song would develop and grow because Michael, in his mind, knew the direction it was going in, but he himself was exploring the writing and was unfolding as it progressed. The the thing that too. Uh to say how how uh, great John's talent was is that Michael Michael was impatient sometimes, and if you couldn't come up with the stuff quick enough, <laughs> there would be no vibe, right? Oh yeah, you know, yeah. Imagine sitting there with somebody who who can't get it, right? And Michael would never do that, and and that is exactly what John Barnes was able to bring to Michael. In other words, John Barnes was talented enough to be able to take what was in Michael's head and to extract it, and then be able to perform it, and then Michael would have the song that he was envisioning. And the thing is, is that Michael really would hear the voicings he wanted and really would hear the changes. And God, I can attest to that. Yeah. Oh my God. But the other thing, as you know, Brad, is that when, when finally, you know, you worked it out and you had all of those chords that Michael was hearing, then you had to play it with the feel that Michael was looking for and the vibe and the total. Yeah. And, and the thing is, Michael, you wouldn't be there if you weren't able to do that. So when John would do that, the only reason John was in the room is because he was good enough to be in the room with Michael. That That's how that works. Yeah. So there's a tiny amount of people who have ever done what John's done with Michael. You have to be uh, unbelievably in tune and musical and... Also intuitive. Everything. Otherwise, Michael's not going to work with you. It's a totally a vibe situation. Totally. If you can generate the groove and the vibe and the harmonics and the chords and the everything. Yeah, you got it. And that's what John was able to do. And again, I would hear countless times from Billy or just from people how creative this guy was that he could go in the studio and just come up with the most amazing parts. He just knew what to do. Yeah. You know, 
Matt, didn't, um, I mean, I think you and I were talking about this previously, but on the EO sessions, I mean, wasn't John really, you know, like we are here to change the world. Was that, I don't want to get into a songwriting debate, but was that kind of John's baby? Well, what we did was when we started Captain EO, because we kind of flowed from project to project, the three of us, what uh, Michael said uh, the, the day that he came in the room and he, he explained uh, to John and myself what we were going to be undertaking next, which was Captain Neo, and he explained it. And, you know, uh, George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola and uh, the Disney Imagineering and, you know, Michael's songs. And, and he goes, and, and you're going to be a big part of it. My head was spinning, but then what we proceeded to do at that point was just have fun in the studio coming up with just ideas. And there were just like several real little quick little idea things that John came up with and then seeing how Michael reacted to a certain kind of a groove or a certain kind of a a sequence of chords. And they were just really rough sketches and ideas. But because John was John, he could lay down a, a drum thing and then he could lay down a couple chords and, and then a bass. And, you know, in in a short order, uh, you know, we'd have a little section. Maybe maybe it would only be a, a, a chorus or a verse of, of an idea for Michael to see what of these ideas did he want to develop into right. full songs. Right. He would call it a test. He'd call it a test. You'd do a demo with him and he'd go, let's do a vocal test. Yeah. And you'd, you'd have a bunch of things like that. And he, uh, yeah, boy, do I remember stuff like that with the workflow. Jamin, I want to, I want to kind of pull people in on, on one quick thing, the musical side. I mean, that, that's a whole amazing skill set to being able to communicate musically with Michael Jackson and extract, you know, kind of match what's in his mind or, or, uh, create musically but then i mean i hadn't really thought about this much before but operating something like the synclav is that is just a complicated technical nightmare usually usually Mm -hmm. you need a a separate person a programmer yeah or even even a lynn drum machine i mean i've seen people really struggle you know with with a, a lynn drum or different back Back in the 80s, I mean, every sequencer was quirky and hiccupy. And don't forget, Sember, the, the syncing of everything you used a oh, MIDI. different synchrony. Yeah, the, <laughs> MIDI sync. And, it, was, uh, it was so messy. Um, there, but there, the fact that John could do both, because I, I, I'm pretty good on a technical level. I'm not a musician. I, I'm not a songwriter. To be able to span both sides of that river is, man, shout out to John. That, yeah. especially yeah, no, that. That, stuff, that stuff was hard. That's one of the things that really shines through to me in, in our interview with him is not only the emotional connection that he had with Michael and the incredible music they could write together, but his absolute passion and drive for technology and pushing the medium forward and experimenting with new things at the time. When I spoke to John, it really felt like I was speaking to a visionary who was able to predict where music was going in terms of technology and get there with Michael. Well, he was doing it at that time. I mean, he was pushing the envelope because that was what Michael wanted. Right, right. That, In other words, had he not been into the sounds the way he talked about and had he not like been open to that's how Michael works. So he was open to it and embraced it and Michael loved it. That's the reason why John was in the room because John had the talent, but he was also willing to understand Michael's vision, which is basically 
you make all your own sounds. Yeah, that was the thing that we did at Havenhurst, because at Havenhurst, there was a separate room where John Barnes set up all his own personal equipment set up and a synclavier. I was in the control room. Things would start in the synth room, and then uh, there were tie lines, so I was getting all of the signals into the control room. I would sit there and listen to these things being developed. They would be monitoring it in that room, and then at a certain point, John would say, I think it's time for Matt to start, uh, you know, engineering the, the recording portion of it. And we would build the demos that way. But John was a really quick learner when it came to almost any kinds of technology because he understood things from so many different angles, which is the same thing that he understood so well about how to execute musical performances. I was very surprised one time. I forgot who it was who came in and, and somebody was listening to one of our demos and they turned and they said, is that real brass that you have? Is that a brass section that you have playing in that, in that section? And Barnes said, that's that's me on the Synclavier. <laughs> wow. And they said, you must have lit up. That sounds exactly like that's live brass. And right. then John, uh, humbly, he wasn't boastful about it, but he says, that's because I grew up learning how to play the horn. So I understand the embouchure required to make something sound like it's real brass. Wow. This was the volume of background information that he possessed and the talent and an ability to take that and then translate that knowledge into the high-tech world of these computers and synclaviers and synthesizers of, of all different varieties, he was really a master of being able to, to integrate that uh, in, in his mind. And he, he would make it and all Matt, work. Matt, the thing is, is that the, the reason what you're saying is so true is because there's no way Michael would have been working side by side with Michael day in and day out if he wasn't able to do that. Right. Well, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. you have to. He was he was able to pull all that together. You, know, yeah. you, could, do, you could do all that. That's why he was such a valuable person to Michael at that point in time. Because at that point in time, this is one of the very, very critical times in Michael Jackson's life and career. Because at this time, Michael is taking it upon himself. And Quincy coached him into this and prompted him into Michael becoming his own person, have his own image, have his own style, write his own music create his own sound and his own production style. And this is what we were collectively doing at that point in time. Uh, there's a magazine in LA. I forget what it's called. Music Connection. Yeah, Music Connection. And one issue came out and John Barnes is on the cover of it. And it says Michael Jackson's secret weapon. Wow. That's great. And, and basically the whole magazine that, that month or whatever was just describing how talented this guy was. Well, he was the cover story, yeah. He was the cover story, yeah. Um, I have this idea. I, I don't know if we're going to be able to pull this off, but I thought maybe we could focus in on a particular song. What is a song that you all probably know collectively the most about, maybe from that late 80s era where John and Michael collaborated on that you were also collaborating on? Can you think of a particular track? That we all all collaborated on? Well, maybe not all of you. I'm not sure that Buxy, you would have been, you know. I would have been after, yeah, I, I came in after John. But the thing is, is what what uh, what the question is, Matt, is what, like like with me, like Stranger in Moscow was my baby, right? Yeah. With John, what was John's baby? Well, I mean, there were so many of them. The one that's probably the most notable 
If I can venture a guess, I would say from the Captain EO project, another part of me made it onto bad. Okay. Okay. So how about, could you walk us through the history of that song from your perspective and your involvement in the studio and that kind of thing and why you think it's significant? Well, it's significant because that was one of these song ideas that we started with the, the very kernel of a, a, an inspiration. And Michael jumped in at the very beginning. And that song just, it felt great. It just had a great feeling. And uh, John Barnes and Michael and myself started that at Westlake Studio. We were doing the pre-record for the production work and the choreography for the, the actual shooting of the film. We constructed however much of the song was needed at that time. And because that was the ending song, and it was kind of, if in traditional film, uh, it'd be like the song that plays over the end credits, except there's no end credits in, in Disney World. But it's, it's where Michael and the characters all walk off into the sunset. It had this tremendous feeling. And we, we just had this little short portion of it. It just felt so great. And Michael uh, wrote the, this, this great lyric. And it was, we, we developed the idea and then it got set aside. And then when we came back to John Barnes and I both went back after Captain EO, we transitioned into the Bad Album. Then that thing that uh, in that recording that you had, when John Barnes said, well, then Matt w wasn't there for a portion of it. Uh, what I had to do was I had to leave Havenhurst and work on the Bad Album to go and do the post-production on Captain EO. So then we finished up the song for the outro of Captain EO. And unbeknownst to me, what they did at uh, Westlake Studio, Quincy and Bruce, was this all of the songs that we did at uh, Havenhurst, we basically fully produced and recorded the songs arrangement-wise and uh, what they basically did at, at Westlake, at least on the songs that originated at, at Havenhurst, was they re-recorded our demos. And Matt, that's the thing that struck me so weird. It's like, why did the demos have to be re-recorded? -re because that was being done. That was totally out of my control. Right, But it right. wasn't until later that uh, I was told that, no, on another part of me, uh, they took the track that I recorded and John Barnes played on and, and he performed. And, yeah. uh, and then that became the track that was on the Bad Album. The only thing they did was they overdubbed uh, Jerry Hay in his horn section. Right. Uh, in addition to all of the, our original tracks. Yeah, because right. it's so, the original tracks where you have the magic. You know, well, it, and, it is. And I think yeah. that's what uh, especially Michael realized because I have been told, in fact, I think I've been told by you and other people who were out on the road, is that when Michael performed that song live, that was one of the ones that the audience really reacted to very strongly. Right. And, and it's because... There's, there's, it's a, it's a tremendous song. It's, it's, it is very personal to Michael, and it was one that actually, you know, spanned those those different uh, eras of time and those different projects. Right. And it was one I was very proud of, and and very proud to have worked with John on constructing that track. I love it. Thank you. And Brad Sundberg, would you be able to add your thoughts on that track and, and any involvement? 
Well, yeah, it's kind of funny. I was uh, still really new with the team. So I, I had heard uh, Matt working on that song, Matt and John, uh, over at Westlake Studio A. And then fast forward, what, 18 months, something like that. And then we started working on it at Westlake Studio D with Bruce and Quincy. And again, I was still kind of just joining the team and, and helping out, <laughs> doing everything from cleaning headphones to uh, making Bruce's coffee. So I, I don't come in with any degree of expertise. But yeah, I knew there was some, uh, I'll use the word friction again, about uh, are we going to use right. you know, Matt and Barnes tracks or you know, let's just re-record the whole song. And, uh, and, and, uh, the fact that it was Matt's version that ultimately it just, it just had the best feel. I mean, it was the real song I, I, I think was, was the right choice. Totally. Totally. You want, you want the homegrown stuff. The best stuff is always that way. You know, I just want to say that's one thing that I love so much about Billy Betrell is Billy got that, you know, Billy, it wasn't about redoing stuff it was like we would never want to change what the original stuff was you know you right yeah and, and that's what that's what i've always loved so much about billy and he's uh and, we, and yeah. we've talked about that you know the two approaches and and I'm, I'm not choosing sides or picking favorites but yeah you've got billy and i would even say you know uh, you know michael john matt who uh you know capture a moment take a picture of it and that's the sound and I love Bruce, so this isn't a swipe, but you've got, you know, Bruce and Quincy who just meticulously sand it and paint it and right, uh, right. and just put all the, the wax and sheen on it. They can both come out with magnificent projects. They're and they both and they both did. I mean they both did. I mean Bruce's Absolutely. Yeah, Bruce's approach in the studio, I've never seen anyone and we should talk about this for a minute, because you know, he's he's not with us anymore and he uh never seen anyone comb the tracks like Bruce would, Bruce would take each track and go through the track and get rid of any unwanted noise. And then he'd have sure. 120 faders up in the <laughs> SSL room over at uh, hit factory and not a single piece of masking tape on any single channel. Right. He's the only engineer I've ever seen that didn't label his channels and he knew where everything was. And I, I never understood that, how he did that. When, when you look out over the breadth of Michael's career, you know, I've had the pleasure of speaking to people that worked with him in the 70s and the 80s and then and right through into in the, the 2000s. And would it be fair to say that Michael became more, I don't know if the word comfortable is right, but especially in the 2000s, he seemed to honor a lot more or include a lot more those original players on particular songs. I'm thinking of Dr. Freeze, for example. Dr. And Dr. Freeze Fre is great. And Dr. Freeze's background vocals on um, songs like Break the Dawn. Yeah, he and Freeze sounds exactly like Michael. Would it be safe to say that Michael in his last decade was a lot more comfortable leaving people on the final CD versions of songs that originally worked on them in the studio compared to the 80s? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll talk about that because it was with Dangerous, Michael decided he wanted to be his own producer, right? He had done Bad with Quincy and he had done Thriller with Quincy and there were huge records and now it's dangerous and Quincy's not around and he just wants to, he wants to be the boss, right? And so with Michael, it wasn't a thing like parts would have to be replayed. And so it wasn't just in the 2000s. It was with Michael at the helm, if there was magic, he wouldn't let you change it. Right. You know, I remember when I did the piano solo to Morphine, I didn't like the way I did the, in the classical section, 
you know, he goes, go write a classical section. So five minutes later, I wrote it and played it. And it's what's on the record. But there's a rhythmic mistake. And he, he wouldn't let me fix it. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, that's that's how my and I, and I love that about Michael. And that's exactly how Billy Betrell would work, too. Right. And uh, then you look at Bruce Swedeen, what he did. And how can you argue against that? That's unbelievable, too. But it's two two different ways of working. You know, Bruce Swedeen works the way Quincy and him came up, which is basically you always use the very best players no matter what. No matter who came up with the part, you're going you're gonna to use the very best players to play that part, right? And with Michael, Michael was more like Billy Petrell, which is it has nothing to do with that. Michael just wants the magic. Right. You know, and, and, and yeah, so in answer to your question about in the 2000s, did he get more comfortable with that, Jamin? It was... Michael was always comfortable with with the homegrown stuff. You know, he would want you'd want to bring Jerry Hay in, like on Blue Gangster, and, and have just the most polished horns in the world. So Michael was all also into that, but only with certain elements. You wouldn't have to have the world's greatest guitar player doing a part if the guy you're using came up with a great guitar part and, and played it the way Michael wanted. I wish I'd gone a little bit more into this with John in my interview with him, but you know, from your perspective and, and Matt in particular, was did John ever express to you how he felt about that? I mean, the incredible innovations he was coming up with in the studio, only to be replaced in the final versions by, you know, uh, other musicians. Did did he ever talk to you about that? Well, he wasn't. Uh... That's a difficult question because uh, I, I I know he would say or think, well, why do they have to re-record this part? What what's wrong with it? Well, it wasn't that there was necessarily anything wrong with it. It's just that now you have a different producer calling the shots and making the decisions. That's exactly that's exactly yeah. Michael sometimes would be adamant about things when he uh, felt very strongly and, and he would speak out about that. And maybe that's what uh, uh, Brad Sundberg was talking about, about them keeping the original tracks to another part of me. For me, it was, we were all there. We were all uh, doing the work uh, that we needed to do. And it was kind of like when it left our hands, we no longer were in control of it. And I think that was one of the things that kind of started some of the uh, friction between uh, what was Quincy and, so to speak, the A team and then the B team uh, working at uh, Havenhurst. Because for the first more than one year of the Bad Album Project, Bruce and Quincy weren't even working on the album yet. It was just us at Havenhurst. Right. And, and for that year and a couple months, there was no second guessing. We were just totally moving on Michael's direction and on his inspiration and on his vision. So when it then the uh, ball game shifted and uh, Quincy and Bruce then picked up the, now we're going to do the real recording down here, then that was the structure of um, – so, so Jamin, in answer to your question, yes, yes, John Barnes would not be happy with that mm. because I, I'm speaking firsthand with talking to Billy and people that told me how that worked. Yeah, where where they they do the creative stuff and then it was redone, and who right. who would who would be happy with that? And 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 in fact, I was told directly that 
they were not happy with it at all. And, and of course you're not going to be happy with it. It's like, Oh my God, you know, what, what's going on? But the strength of Bruce and Quincy, I mean, that's the most hardcore recording team ever, ever doesn't get, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. So it's like, how do you, like what Matt would say, you do the creative stuff and then it would leave your hands and go, and go to Bruce and Quincy and then they're going to do their creative stuff to it. But they, it's not a, it's not a matter of an A team or B team that, the so-called B team is that the whole creative part of this thing right. in the first place. Mm. It's the most important part of it. So when Bruce and Quincy take over a track, nobody can do records better than them also. So what do you end up having at the end of the day? The greatest records of all time. There's no flaw in the process. It works. Thriller is the best record ever. Just to round off this topic, I wouldn't mind reading you guys a couple of quotes just to really help uh, the discussion. Bill Bottrell said about this period, well, at the end of the bad sessions in 1986, Quincy said to Michael, okay, can he, meaning Billy, be done now? Michael and Frank DeLeo said, don't worry, you'll be back on the next one as a producer. Chris Carell said, and this is a bit of a lengthy quote, but he said, it went pretty smooth in the studio, but there was a point when there were two teams of people working, Bill Bottrell and John Barnes and Quincy and Bruce. And I was working with both because I was working for Michael. So I was always there. This particular conflict started when Michael started noticing that when we transferred the Synclavia to digital tape in the studio compared to directly from the Synclavia at Michael's house, something was missing. Frank said, that we had to do something about it, like re-record every track and handle it. Bill Bottrell and John Barnes also agreed with this, and Michael wanted to start retracking this stuff at his house on his Studer multi-track machines. I don't think Bruce and Quincy totally understood why this was happening at the time, since there was no good communication going on about it. It started making Quincy and Bruce quite upset. Who's the producer? It's Quincy, not John Barnes or Bill Bottrell. And one day, it just blew up. I went to Westlake and I was told by Michael's secretary that Quincy and Bruce had given an ultimatum to Michael. Either Betrell and Barnes would go or they would go. Wow. Look, even subsequently down the line on album projects, Bruce and Billy, the relationship wasn't good. <laughs> it, you was, know? So, it was so yeah, strange. <laughs> it was, yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much dimension to this. We it could goes, go into deep. for hours. Yeah, really deep. But um those sorts of conflicts are always part of the creative process where if things are too homogenous and perfect, you're not going to have a good record. So even though, even though you have conflict, it's sometimes, I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it's part of the process. It's part of the, what do you end up with at the end of the day? You end up with masterful works of art mm. and then the process is messy. That's how life works. Matt said something, and, and this does tie in, I promise, but Matt said something about how Bruce and Quincy weren't, uh, you know, obviously weren't involved in those early sessions with uh, Billy and, and Barnes and Matt. And I started thinking, what were they doing at that point? Well, they were working on The Color Purple and on Running Scared. Well, The Color Purple is just a gorgeous masterpiece. orchestral yeah. masterpiece of masterpiece. an album uh, produced by Quincy and the movie produced by Steven Spielberg. And uh, Running Scared is almost, it's a slightly overlooked soundtrack, but most of it was written by Rod Temperton, produced by Quincy again. No, uh, no, it was produced by Rod. I take it back. That was produced by Rod. It sounds like Rod. It sounds like Bruce. Every track is just polished and gorgeous and beautiful. I mean, it's got a mid 80s sound, but those are the sounds that were in Bruce and Quincy's ears right, right. when they sat down. 
and they're listening to another part of me and smooth criminal and some of those amazing early That's tracks. That's interesting. But they, they've been just polishing the Ferrari for the past year. Right. I don't think they wanted that raw Billy and Barnes. No, that's Sunberg. The way you put that is awesome. It's exactly the context. They're polishing a Ferrari and they, yeah, they don't want anything raw. They want, they're, they're in polishing yeah. mode. Yeah. 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 Well, I remember being asked the question, what was the difference between the uh, recordings and the mixes of those songs that came out of Havenhurst versus what came out of the process at Westlake with Bruce and Quincy? And I said, well, things out of Havenhurst just had a slightly more raw quality. They were all of Michael's ideas. They were all of his production style, all of his things that he had in his vision. But it wasn't the slick, polished uh, final thing no. that they were able to create it at Westlake. I mean, the equipment was different. The people were different. Well, and something that even Buxer mentioned a minute ago, like morphine, and I love morphine, not not the not the drug, the song. And uh, <laughs> but I mean, that has just that raw, cold slap yeah. sound to it, and that's a lot of times that's where Michael is at. Yep, but- and that's that. That's what you. That's what you want. There's a beauty and a vibe to it, and it's like, how would you clean that up and make it better? You wouldn't. We did that in between the legs of the. Uh, we did blood and mantra, right? And we did that between the two legs of the uh, history tour. And then uh, Michael wasn't working with Bruce, so I brought Mick Azowski in, who Michael would call Hot Wing, right? And who, <laughs> <laughs> who was just it's such a brilliant engineer. But I'll never forget the first time Michael met him, and just was like. Seriously, you know, <laughs> I, think, I think Mick had uh, j- just eaten some lunch, and there was, and and there was some J- stuff Jamie, on his shirt. I, I don't know how much you want to use of this. Yeah, Mick, uh, Mick is great. Yeah, Mick but, is just brilliant. Yeah, but it, yeah, Mick, Mick is Mick's at Bruce's level, really. I mean, yeah, if you, yeah. Well, he's a, he's an absolutely brilliant individual, brilliant engineer. Maybe, yeah. I don't know if anyone's at Bruce's level, but he. Damn close, yeah, right? He, he, yeah. he's, he's, he's a tremendously talented engineer, and, and he completely complemented what Michael wanted to do musically. Right. We did that record out there, Morphine, and it was just beautiful because it's like Mick's meticulous, but Mick's also Mick, Mick will get in a truck and run over couches for fun. Mick right. likes blowing stuff up. So Mick is, <laughs> is like that. He's a kid. The rawness in, in that album. Blood on the Dance Floor, even though it's not a full album, it's um four or five new songs, but it's uh it was it was just great to do and, and it didn't have to be it was polished, but it didn't have to be thought about being polished. It was polished because Mick was so good, but it was also full it just raw, great stuff. Very very creative. The the process was creative and it was fun and it was quick. It didn't take like years to do it. It's we did that album over the course of three months or something. I love that album and we can't wait. We're going to do a uh, roundtable episode on that album later in the year because I think it's its 25th anniversary this year. Wow. Uh, Joan, to spe- speaking to the thing about the difference between the, the Havenhurst and the Westlake thing and the two the personnel of both is that uh, Westlake was, Quincy was calling the shots, uh, Bruce was engineering, and at Havenhurst, there was a little bit more of a group mentality between Michael and John and either Billy or myself. We kind of were kind of all fused and we were on kind of more like the same wavelength. And I think that we were also much more similar in our ages 
and Bruce and Quincy were a little bit older, so their perspective was just slightly different about how do we approach making what we're trying to accomplish. And it was just a difference between uh, the personalities of uh, who was producing. Mm. And I guess, you know, the weight of Thriller is is talked about a lot in terms oh, of Michael following up that album. But when you've got Quincy and Bruce who helmed Thriller with Michael, and then you've got Michael with a homegrown skunk works team working out of Havenhurst, I mean, you know, that, that that must have been a massive factor as well. The way Michael worked is he would, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but he would not try to put people against each other, but he sure didn't mind it when there was a little bit of feuding going on. It's just the way he worked. And he'd also like never want people to get too close with each other. In other words, he, I could go into this um, with how Michael's, Michael's head worked. In other words, Michael liked it when there was a little, little Michael tension. would say, Oh, it needs to be harmonious. But really what's going on in Michael's head is Michael's getting a kick out of, Two great teams feuding a little bit. That's having, having Billy in Studio C and Bruce in Studio D. Yeah, competing, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it's it's a, it's awesome. That's the way nature works. You know, it's yeah. like yeah. Well, a lot of geniuses work like that. It kind of reminds me of Steve Jobs and how he used to work at Apple with different teams set up around building different kinds of Macs and playing them off against each other to ultimately get the best product. Right. And, um, Michael yeah, would play people off against each other. Yeah, sure. I, I learned that when I did the interview with Brian Loren. <laughs> yeah, he. Uh, oh yes. Talked a lot about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Brian's a great guy and, and very, very creative and gifted. Yeah. You know, uh, I want to play another clip now from John. Let's hear again a little bit about how John and Michael used to work. You, who were really at the center of this team in such a remarkable way, you were there in the studio every to every day, always working and creating and being imaginative and seeing what you could push forward. You know, you were this origin team, I think. I love that. With that in mind and thinking about, you know, your team in this way, and again, I think correcting the public perception of what this team really was which I also think is so important. Can you tell us a little bit about what those Havenhurst sessions were like with Bill Patrell and also I know in the, or in the early part, Matt Forger? Basically, they were pretty simple. I would get with Michael. We would look at what we were going to do or what we wanted to accomplish. If he didn't have anything that he was wanting to accomplish at that time or if he wasn't going to be around for a few days or whatever that was, then I would plan an agenda. We would either go out and do field recordings that were going to be used for, you know, the Foley slash sound effects stuff, or I would start working on taking what we had done and figuring out ways to combine that with other instrument sounds and create things. And then if I was so inspired, I'd maybe create a piece of music and, so it kind of was like a, a relay race in that that part of it would go into action. Then we'd have a piece of music. Then that would go over to Bill and Bill would send it back and we'd hear what he did. And then that would become exciting. And then that would trigger more energy. And we just kind of became um, inspirations to one another by bringing our gifts to bear. They were really that straightforward and simple. Three guys in a 
in a small studio just doing that. Yeah. Not making it a big deal. It wasn't videotaping every day. It wasn't having lots of people in and out. It was very focused and streamlined. Yeah. So that's what we did. I love the way John explains that yeah. that interaction between you all at Havenhurst in being people inspiring each other. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very visual. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, he, it's a beautiful description. One thing about John Barnes, like, I don't know him the way you guys do, but what a what a clear thinker. I mean, I agree. Oh, my God. Just the guy is just spot on on everything he's saying. I know how the creative process works because I work with Michael 20 years, and it's exactly what he's describing. Yeah. There's no way to fabricate any of this. What he's saying it so clearly, you know, goes from – me to Billy, Billy steps on it, it goes back, stepping on it means working on it, and, and it goes back to me, and I work on it, and Michael looks at it, and then, yeah, it's exactly, it's, a lot of it's just random, and a lot of it is just like, there's not a whole lot of structure with it, you just kind of, okay, let's, let's work on this now, Yeah, let's put this on the shelf for a minute, and then as the album project starts coming to completion, you always have the bulletin board thing with the notes on it, right? and each note has a song on it, so, so it can start becoming organized. But yeah, I love I love John's description of the process. It's humble and it's creative and it's beautiful. I think we'll wrap this section now by by just talking about how things kind of finished up at Havenhurst. Would one of you be able to describe, uh, maybe Matt, at what point the creative work at Havenhurst kind of stopped and why? Well, it came to a, uh, I don't want to say it came to a finish or an end, because Michael had us continuously working on new song ideas, developing new grooves, new, new, uh, just experimenting new sounds. Michael didn't want the creative process to stop. But there was a point in time when it was proposed, I don't know who, I think it might have been Michael, who said that uh, they wanted to make Bad to be a triple vinyl release because there was so much new material, which is was exactly true. I mean, we were working on lots of songs. And uh, the record label put a kibosh on that because obviously the marketing and the cost of such a, an album w- would be restrictive to a lot of fans. So it slowly it became the people working at Havenhurst when, when uh, Bad went into its final phase of uh, – uh, finishing up at, at Westlake, it, it became redundant because there wasn't more work for us to do. I continued to work with Chris Carell there, developing sounds, and that started to run into talk of uh, the the run up to the bad tour. At the same time, uh, I know Michael was involved with the Moonwalker. The, the music videos for, for bad. And there was a, a whole lot of things that just all of a sudden we, we weren't accomplishing anything that was really going to be used uh, in the immediate near future. Unlike the beginning of, of the project, very often at the beginning of the project, there's all this tremendous inspiration, but when you're getting closer to the end, it's kind of like you're wanting to, to get to that finish line and you're feeling like it's really close and that's where the focus for the energy was. So we just kind of uh, slowly uh, finished up, and it was in one of the portions of my working on the post-production of Captain EO, which was simultaneous to the Bad Album and the work at Havenhurst, that uh, for some reason uh, 
John Barnes uh, just kind of bowed out or, or left the uh, he, he left the scene. He le- left the team. Uh, I don't know what specifically happened or was said or or what the the uh, cause of it was. It just uh, kind of slowly, uh, you know, the the, the parts uh, of the machine started to to, to just piece by piece just fall apart. Matt, I can tell you what it is because I've I've been there. Um, Michael will utilize the creative part of it, the musicians at the front of a project, right, and get the most out of them that they can. And then towards the end of a project, when the creative process is done he's done with you right yeah and to, to some extent in other words it's not it's not as cold as i'm making it but you know that's how it works in other words michael very much wants to take ownership of his stuff and if you come up with a bunch of stuff on it and michael now has it your part's done and M- michael will feel uh, greater ownership if, it, if nobody's around well, well yes but also too there's like you said there's there's very little creative work to do. To do, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. You're and, in the and, very final phase of right. the, the final overdubs, and and all the songs are decided on what's going to be the lineup. And, of, and the of creative, the, the creative part of it, which was making the songs in the first place, is done. Right. You know, now it's just polishing. So that's it wasn't anything that John would have done to to not be present anymore. It's just Michael was. That's how Michael works. Right. Yeah. And then Michael, Michael will always bring you back, and you're you're more important than ever on the next. You know, so nothing yeah. nothing wrong with it. It's just how life works, it's how it is. Yeah, John did return at a at a later point sure. in time. Sure, it's just that at one point, Chris Carell took over the duties of John Barnes, and John Barnes maybe he saw it was a good time to just step away if he wasn't feeling like he was contributing up to the. Uh, uh, the level of uh, like of the creative input. Well, he had already done. He had already made the magic. You yeah, know what I'm yeah, saying? He, he was, he, required the it. huge part of the creative process was because of him, and he had already done that. And so right. that can't be overstated. How important that is, you know. So, it's, yeah. And and at that point in the project on the bad album, even and and this isn't a, a diss on Chris at all, but even then, I think, in to my recollection, the Synclav was kind of becoming less and less. I think at one point it was going to be a Synclav album, but Bruce wasn't going to do a Synclav album. So I think by the time I got into, you know, well into overdubs and, and pre-mixing, even Chris wasn't, uh, not diminishing his contributions, but uh, by then most of the stuff was on tape and, uh, and right. Bruce was kind of easing into mixing. At that point in time, the most important people in the project, be, you know, and Bruce deserves it. But you know how important Bruce is at the end of a project, right? Sure. Yeah, and at the beginning of a project, Bruce isn't even there. So that's that's how it works. The, the, the process of making an album is very dynamic as far as the, who's present when and, and how it all works. And towards the end of it, it becomes much more of a, not mechanical process, but much more of a grooming process. Yeah, and polishing. Process, polishing, yeah. Yeah. We know, though, that John did continue to work with Michael for many years after Bad, even, you know, right into the 2000s. John was in Bahrain working with Michael again. Brad Buxer, do you have any recollections of John Barnes' work with Michael beyond that period? Well, here's what, here's what I know. I worked with Michael through the end of 2004, and then Michael had his trial in 2005, right? 
Michael uh, was found not guilty of everything, I think June 13th, 2005, and went to Bahrain. And I stayed in L.A., and John Barnes came out at some point, worked with Michael out there. Michael came back, and I started working with Michael for all of 2007 up in Vegas until 2008, basically. And so, again, when the way Michael works is like, you know, you don't even know what's going on. Like, I didn't, when I was working with Michael for all of 2007, I never saw John Barnes once, you know, and I was, all my stuff was at Michael's house. So I was there all the time. And so when I'm in LA and John's with Michael and Bahrain, then it's just John and Michael. So that's just kind of how we worked. He uh, was working, I think, a little more solitary in those years than he had in previous years. Like previous years, you'd have, you know, two teams at Westlake or at Record One or at Hit Factory, whatever. And in this situation, Michael wasn't in the studio. Michael, you you would just be up at his house and it was just you and him. So I remember when John was out there with him and, and they were working on stuff and then I would be working with Michael at the same time, didn't even know John was out there. I'd be on the phone with him mm. working on Light the Way or, you know, doing stuff from, from my house. So um, it, it would be fascinating to hear what their final work was. We know that a lot of artists laid down complete vocals for the track that we've still not heard, but you've got Snoop Dogg, you've got the OJs, you've got all of these artists that have completed you know, and contributed tracks. Don't know how much Michael did on it, but John Barnes and Michael's last work is still yet to be heard by the public. And yeah, I don't know what the future holds with that, but um, hopefully we'll get to hear it. Right? I, yeah. I bet it's amazing. John's an amazing uh, musician, and and I I know this more from my relationship with Billy Betrell and other people than than my relationship with John. In other words, you just know how good somebody is from the people that you respect and love who've worked with that person and they just rave about them. Right. And that, that's what I found out is like, this guy is like, you know, Billy's just going on and on and on about him. You know, what an amazing talent. And like, just listening to him speak, the guy's humble. And then my limited interactions with him, the guy's edgy. (laughs) And I just think it's an awesome combination. Yeah. And you know what? Another aspect of John Barnes, we haven't really talked about too much yet is how funny the guy was. I mean, I had the pleasure of being able to speak to him for about three hours and I was just by the end of that interview, because we, we dealt with some pretty heavy topics through the interview, but by the end of it, I was in hysterics. He was in hysterics, just cracking hilarious jokes. I remember him talking to me about Australia and how much he wants to come here, but he's afraid of uh, <laughs> particular uh, dangerous animals like spiders. And <laughs> You guys <laughs> got a lot of that, boy. We, yeah. we, we got a lot of that. But he yeah. dropped this story, and the last clip that I want to play to you guys is this hilarious story that he tells about Michael being a little bit mischievous in the studio. So let me play that now. <laughs> okay. On the musical side, that's one of them. But on another side... <laughs> <laughs> We were in a studio and um, some people came for a meeting. And I guess they were thinking, okay, that this meeting, let's say it's supposed to happen at five o'clock. So they get there for five and Michael says to him, you know, could you go sit out there for a little bit and uh, just wait for me. And so they, you know, are putting on their, best Michael Jackson personality and they go sit out there. And so I'm sitting there (laughs) and he pushes up a fader on the recording console (laughs) and it's to an open mic. 
And you hear these people say stuff like, who does he think he is? We're here and we're supposed to have this meeting. Blah, 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 blah. And they're just going on and on and on and just talking. And I'm looking and going, oh, my God. <laughs> so, then, so then he invites them in and they go, Michael, how are you? Wow. Blah, blah, blah. And they're talking and they have this meeting. And just when they're leaving, he hands them a cassette and says, here's a little something for you to listen to on your way home. Oh, <laughs> my God. <laughs> and it was a recording of them talking. <laughs> oh, that is badass. Wow. That, that is awesome. <laughs> I mean, you know what? That's that's even a stretch for Michael. Don't you think, Sunberg and Forger, that he would do that? <laughs> I, I, I can see him pushing the fader up. But I can't see him giving him a cassette. I mean, I know he did, because but boy, that's that's evil. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in that particular instance, however, this 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 goes to a, a, another point about John Barnes, and that is, uh, a while ago, I was speaking to the woman who was the traffic manager and booking manager for Westlake Studios, and she said to me, back in the era of uh, Captain Neo, and when we started Bad, and uh, uh, sent to who me, Debbie. Uh no, um this was uh um, I mean I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm just curious. Uh this this uh, who 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 was this? Paula Paula, Paula. Saul. Okay. Okay. So so Paula says to me, you know, that was there was one thing always about when when you guys were in there with Michael. Whenever I would walk by the studio or you know the door would open somebody was doing something the door would open and she goes you guys were in there having fun. We were, <laughs> and I said, "Well, you have to realize if if you don't have that kind of an atmosphere and you aren't having fun doing that work of creating that music, if that's not a component of it, then that component is not going to come through when people listen to what you've created." So, mm-hmm. Michael was a, an amazingly funny person in terms of being a jokester. John Barnes loved it too. Uh, there was more than one occasion when I was the brunt of, uh, you know, some some jokes and, and laughing or Michael doing a, a little trick. But that was something that we were, it, it bonded us. That was that was the vibe that was between us. We would have a, something funny would be happening. The three of us would just hysterically break up. He, he, uh, yeah. he, Michael, Michael liked to have a good time, yeah. But that was the thing about John Barnes was he would have this really deep, hearty laugh the same way Michael would have a really deep, hearty laugh. And sometimes, you know, Michael would fall against the wall laughing so hard. And John Barnes would double over, and of course I, I, I'd be laughing too. But that was that was that was the vibe. That was that was how close we were as friends in the working environment. And when you share that, it comes through in what it is that you create. Right. Totally. Well, I I can clearly remember. I mean, and John could clown. I mean, John could clown hard. And <laughs> and again, I mean, I was. I hate to keep talking about being a kid, but, you know, I'm just trying to do my job and everything. And John Barnes would just be just on fire, you know, just telling jokes and and doing anything crazy. And I can still hear Michael, you know, John, you crazy. John, you crazy. (laughs) I can picture that. And it would, and especially with like Bruce and Quincy, I mean, they, 
John could maybe push it maybe just to the edge of, uh, of where they wanted to go. I mean, they wanted to keep making a record, but John would just, he, he was very, very funny and not afraid to push the bounds. There was one moment when we were in the uh, control room and uh, Michael at that time had Bubbles and Bubbles was a very young when I think Bubbles first came on the scene at the end of uh, Thriller. Uh, but then he was a little bit older by the time we got to Havenhurst and we got to bed. So there was one day, <laughs> and, and I'm sorry I have to tell this. It does not <laughs> reflect in any way on, on any of us or Michael. But lots of times Michael would bring Bubbles out and then Bubbles would love to get in trouble and play with stuff like uh, throw headphones and run around. Or if there was a box of Kleenex, one day we walked from one room to the other room. He had taken out one by one Kleenex and thrown them all over the room. (laughs) We just would die laughing. So this one day I'm at the mixing uh, console. John Barnes is on the end of the console and Michael is standing between myself and John Barnes and Bubbles is there and he walks behind myself. The Studer 24-track tape recording machines were against the rear wall of the studio, so they were behind me, but not that terribly far away. And I'm doing a, a kind of a, a mix of some of the elements, and I glance around, and Bubbles is reaching and putting his finger up, and he sees the mechanism of the the spools turning and the tape moving. And I see him just about to stick his finger (laughs) into the mechanism. (laughs) I didn't want him to hurt himself. So I went, no. And I really yelled very strongly to get his attention to, to prevent him from hurting himself. And at the same time, Michael had taken a newspaper that he had kind of rolled up And he swatted, just like that noise, he swatted Bubbles because he didn't want Bubbles to get hurt. (laughs) But I was the one who was vocalizing, but Michael was swatting him. And Bubbles turned around, and Bubbles and I were face-to-face, and we were about a foot apart. (laughs) And Michael and John Barnes... <laughs> fell on the floor laughing, and I looked at Bubbles and thought to myself, "Is he going to rip my face off yeah, at this moment?" Yeah, he could hurt you <laughs> because I mean, he was quite strong. Oh yeah, but Bub- Bubbles didn't realize Michael had swatted him with the newspaper. He heard me yelling, "No!" <laughs> so, so, yeah, Michael and John are just. I mean, it was one of the funniest moments of all of us being, and it was at my expense because I thought, oh, (laughs) he is going to just jump on me and whip me to a pulp, which he could have, but he didn't. Both John and Michael are saying, whoa, he looked like he was going to really take you out. He looked like he was mad at you. And I'm going like, yeah, and I'm I'm absolutely scared out of my mind thinking that just what you're thinking that he is going to do that. <laughs> so we all had a good laugh after it. I just I, I just wonder what goes through someone's mind like Bubbles. I mean, they just can't imagine <laughs> what that's like. But Bubbles didn't see Michael swat him, right? So he only right, heard right. me yelling yeah. no. So <laughs> Bubbles immediately turned and faced me. 
That's, you were in and, trouble. And then, and then Michael just lost it. He, he just he, he just lost it laughing. Uh, you hang so, out to dry. I know Bubbles upset Michael at one point, and then Michael got rid of him. But I guess when he was going through adolescence, he became aggressive. Do you remember anything about that, guys? No, that was a little bit later. And uh, uh, Michael did describe how when they reach that adolescent uh, phase, it's like being a teenager, but the chimpanzees... They get aggressive, I guess, right? They do. I mean, it's the same thing that happens to teenage humans. Sure. You know, you start to assert yourself. You realize your your strength and your ability, and uh, you want to confront things that you don't understand or that upset you. Yeah. Unfortunately, he told me it became unfortunate. I don't know what occurred. I can imagine seeing an aggressive chimp in front of Michael. Michael would be totally not into that. Right. I mean, Michael. Oh, Michael. Yes. Yeah. And Michael I was. Michael likes things that are nice and sweet, not nasty. And, and yeah, and I was face to face with with someone who could have the fuse could yeah. was already if if the right. fuse had burned down to the powder, uh, I don't know if I'd be here. <laughs> right, right. That's awesome. Did you guys uh, just on a side note? I wasn't around when he used to have his snake in the studio. Right. What was the snake's name? Muscles. Uh, muscles. muscles. Yeah. So, do you? Uh, how big was that snake? Long, I think sixteen feet. Something like 16, that. 14. Was it a boa, boa constrictor? Yeah, it was, a, it was an albino. Yeah, albino okay. python. I think it was. No, it was a boa. Oh, albino boa. Okay. And the thing would just like have free reign in the studio and just. No, well, it depends. I mean, I, I, you know, there's kind of that famous picture where I think they brought him to Studio D at one point, and and a bunch of people were holding him. I don't know who would bring him in. I don't think Michael brought him in. I think it was yeah, one Michael of- would bring him in, and uh, Michael would bring him in in a, in like a, a burlap bag, a gunny sack. And as long as the snake was in the sack, <laughs> he, would, he would be kind of like chilling. It, you know? well, and he liked to be on the console because it was warm. Right. Exactly. So he, he would be actually on the console where the faders and knobs. Yeah, I mean, I think for a photo, but I mean, there's there's work to do. Yeah, he would slither from one end and then he'd slither back. Yeah, and this was not, you know, for anybody that's listening, this this was not every day. No, I mean, right, right. <laughs> Michael would do it kind of as a prank on on occasion. Do you remember the reptile zoo at the ranch? I built you'd it. Walk in, you'd walk in it with Brad. What, it was like 110 <laughs> degrees. I guess it was hot because it had to be. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, that, then, it wasn't that hot. Yeah. It was. It, and uh, <laughs> you'd go in there and there's just all these nasty bugs and uh, creatures that I can't. Oh my god! I had to crawl under that thing. No, yeah, we, uh, yeah, we did all the sound effects and music, and uh, yeah, that was wow. <laughs> okay, let's let's bring it back to John. Yeah, Bob. Let's bring it back to John. Yeah. <laughs> I have um, I do have a question about a song. Seeing as I have all of you guys here together now, there is a song that I'm thinking John may or may not have been involved with in the bad era that fans still don't know a whole lot about. But we have heard from some journalists, for example, Joe Vogel who listened to the song in the preparation for Bad 25 and couldn't understand why it wasn't released on the album because it was so good and so complete. My understanding is that it was maybe a homegrown creation. The song is called Crack Kills. And I'm wondering whether any of you know about that song and if John Barnes was involved in it and what it's like. Yes, I worked on that song with, uh, uh, with John Barnes. It's down in demo drawer three, Matt, down to your right. <laughs> 
it's 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 uh it, it was one of those many tracks that we did at Havenhurst and it was a really what the song title you can imagine Michael's attitude was he, he was he was really strongly stating his attitude at the, at that time crack was a huge huge problem epidemic uh, uh proportion in in probably all the major centers in the United States in in terms of people being addicted. And it killed. It killed a lot of people. And Michael wrote this thing from the heart. And it was like an up-tempo, aggressive-sounding song. And I can't sing it, so I can't demonstrate what the song was. And it was just one of those things that it got to the end of the bad album and there there wasn't a place for it uh if uh if michael's concept of doing a triple uh vinyl release then then there would have been a place for it but it wasn't competing to be a uh top 40 hit mm. it was like a strong very strong message song like many of michael's songs are like uh, abortion papers uh, which was called uh, Groove Something Else. And that was released on, um, I think that was Bad 25. Bad 25, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, 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 was, it, was, it was the nature of, of Michael addressing uh, social conditions and, and social ills because he was aware of all of these things. Yeah, he, he, was, he, he was always aware of stuff like that. And he was creating these statements, whatever the subject was. I mean, he was creating statements because that was his creative nature. I mean, I remember hearing about crack kills, but I don't think – I'm not even sure it made it – I don't mean it to be disrespectful. I, I don't think it made it to Westlake Studio D or may, no. maybe Quincy gave it a quick listen no. or something. I mean, but, it's a way way too heavy yeah, of a title. Yeah, we, we, yeah, I know we didn't work on it. At, at, no, at the next didn't, level. didn't make it out of Havenhurst. Yeah. Right. And it makes me wonder as well about the Bad Album in general and the makeup of the album. I mean, I know a lot of the songs on the album, I don't want to call them safe songs, but like, you know, they're, they're pretty, they're, there's a lot of love songs that, you know, there is Man in the Mirror, which is generally talking about social issues. But there are a lot of songs that didn't make it on the album that are very, very heavily socially conscious. You know, you've got songs like Crack Kills, like Abortion Papers, like Price of Fame, um, do you know where your children are? A lot of those songs, I've often wondered, you know, was it an intentional decision to leave some of those really heavily socially conscious songs off? I can only say that, yes, it, obviously it was because that's what happened because Quincy was making a, a pop album. Right, right, right. Yeah. You, could, you could only, at that point in time, you could only go so far pushing social issues uh, because of the, the climate of in this case, uh, Sony Music wanting to sell albums, and uh, you know having to appeal to a, a very wide audience. You weren't appealing to any one segment. Uh, at this point in time, the entire music industry and the entertainment and everything else is so incredibly segmented, and genres are so specific to specific artists and, and uh, audiences, it's, it's a different game. It's a totally different thing. So Quincy, coming from the position of being a, a, a record executive himself, he knew how to formulate a set or a collection of songs that would take you on a, a, 
journey through all of these different textures and songs and sounds and, and landscapes in music. And you just, there was a lot of things that were just too extreme. Yeah. Uh, that just didn't make it in consideration for that reason. Yeah. No, Matt, Matt, you put it perfectly. It's like a, an album, like a song, like the way you make me feel fits and a song like, you know, a big social issue song. It doesn't. Right. It's, it's, yeah. it's a kind of not a, it's a little bit of a turnoff. It's like too heavy, you know. It's like the yeah, way you make think, me feel is is the it's just a feel good song. It's just yeah, awesome. smooth criminal. Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. man, I think man in the mirror, yeah, you know, which is a brilliant song, is about as far as right, right. As you know, Quincy and you know, I'll just say Quincy probably wanted to take it at that point. It's interesting contrasting though with other artists like Michael's sister Janet, who was doing Rhythm Nation around the same time that was extremely socially conscious. You've sure. got Prince's sign of the times. You can't help but wonder whether Michael was seeing that and then going, "What? you know what, I'm going to wait till dangerous and we're going to go all in. <laughs> it's the same thing. People can get away with certain things. Like Janet can get away with being a movie star where Michael wanted that more than anything and couldn't. Right. Mm. You know, because he's maybe he's too well known to be, you know, he wanted the, the film Powder really bad. He wanted Peter Pan really bad. He, he couldn't do that where Janet could. So it's just, you know, different artists, even artists as closely related as Janet and Michael were, their siblings, they can get away with certain things and they, they can't get away with certain things. You know, it's just, a, yeah, there's, there's certain expectations, yeah. uh, that especially companies and corporations have, uh, for certain yeah. artists in, in their image. And, uh, it gets into a really complicated, uh, area and, uh, discussion wise. It's, it's, it's I, I mean, the one, the one thing about with Michael that we can't ever forget is like, we can talk about other artists and all this, but there's still nobody that's ever done what he's done. Right. And, and we're not saying that because we work for him. We're saying that because it's true. There's no other artist before or after that's ever been able to perform like him ever. Well, and at the end of the day, I mean, his, you know, his title, his title was, or is the, the King of pop. Yeah. And w whether you like that or don't like it, he's the best know, performer to, of all, of all time, best performer of all time. And, and is the time. King of pop going to do, going to do crack kills. I mean, right. I don't mean to make light of it, but no, but, but it's, he, it's, he knows his audience and, yeah. uh, and those are the people that are buying the records. And what was so funny is he wanted so badly to do film and what he doesn't realize is like he did do film like smooth criminals. Like oh, the are you kidding? Thing ever. Yeah, ghosts, please. Yeah. So yeah, he's uh what, what, a what an honor to even be in the same room with him. And we, I mean, with, with everyone who's worked with him, it's like, it's not like he's just, one of the greatest artists he he's it right he's it like barry gordy said at his memorial the greatest entertainer that ever lived right. that ever lived right. and that, that ever will there's who who else has even come close to doing what he's done even if they're super talented he wrote all the moves you know it's, it's one thing if somebody can pull off some of the moves it's he he wrote the the book on it yeah Love it. He didn't even mean to. He just came up with it. One thing I loved about Michael, he, he used an old-fashioned, I, I call it an old-fashioned phrase, which was show business. And he would talk about, you know, being in show business. And, and you know, in the 80s and 90s, people referred to it as the industry. Right. You know, like the music industry, the film industry. And he would talk about show business. He was always old school, Sumber. Remember? He he, yeah, he was old school, but he, he spanned all of those, you know, uh, singing, dance. Yeah, you're right. He wasn't a movie star, but he was a, a visual star. He studied all that stuff. He'd watch Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, and he'd he'd study all the old school stuff. And, and uh, then without him even trying, he came up with stuff like the moonwalk, and he, he came up with 
the dancing and in the video thriller, he came up with stuff that he, it's like he didn't even try. It just came out of him. Right. You know, yeah. Well, did, also, too, I think the statement that uh, that, that uh, Mr. Sunberg is making there is true, and it's reflected in what Michael chose to be the cover of the Dangerous album. I mean, that's that's a, a homage to uh, P.T. Barnum. Yeah. And I tell yeah. You, you want to talk about show business? Right. Right. Business. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. Love it. Do you remember when the Dangerous album came out, and we were given those pop-up versions of it where? You'd open the cover and this amazingly complicated paper pop-up structure. Um, would... I'm looking up. I'm looking at mine across the room right now. Yeah, I, I don't have mine anymore. But isn't that a, is is it good? <laughs> what'd, you, what'd you do with it? I don't know, Summer. But, but I, had Mike, is... I had Michael sign mine, and you like used yours as a doorstop. No, no, but is it still in good condition? <laughs> yes, it's in a frame. <laughs> oh my god! I, will you... Well, it's not in a frame because it's 3D, right? Well, yeah, I have another yeah, one yeah. you can open, but but the sign was in a frame. Another right, right. one you can open. You're just flexing right. now. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I that was the coolest. Yeah, it must have been behind thing. the door when they were handed out. <laughs> uh, uh, guys, I want to ask each of you a final question. And this is a, a question that we normally ask in special interviews to our guests. We ask, how should Michael Jackson be remembered? Oh, this boy. time I'd like to ask each of you in turn, a similar question, but this time about Mr. Barnes. Um, let's start with Brad Sundberg. Brad, how do you think John Barnes should be remembered? Oh, man. Um, I mean, the funny thing is, and I kind of alluded to this earlier, I, I was so young when I was working with him, and I was so wrapped up in the technology and just the 99 details you had to take care of you know, every hour. And it was later on when John came to at least one, if not, I think he came to two of my events and I was able just to sit back and, and, uh, and listen to him talk. And he, he was such a gentle giant. He, he, he was a, he was a big, just a big, beautiful, gentle giant who was so talented and funny and comfortable in his own skin, comfortable, you know, I mean, just looking back at his discography going, you know, going back to the early seventies and yet still fitting right in with Michael Jackson and being a master of some amazingly complex gear with a sense of humor. I, I, I have nothing but respect. Yeah. I love those thoughts. I love it. Brad Buxa, you had the privilege of holding a similar role in Michael's life to what John did earlier, being an incredibly close personal songwriting companion to Michael. Just reflecting on that, how how do you think John Barnes should be remembered? As somebody who probably never got his, his due credit, somebody who is magnificently talented and uh, funny and edgy and had a great street sense all those things I love. I don't like softness. I like, I like coolness. I like street. I like edginess. I like stuff like that. I don't like things when they're too sweet. And uh, he was edgy, gifted, talented. He could play great. He could arrange great. He could write great. I have nothing but respect for him. Nothing but respect. And, and the thing is, is it's not just me saying that it's like when you hear the way other people talk about him, when you hear the way like Billy Betrell, who brought me into this whole thing, 
And you hear the way Billy would talk about John Barnes. It was just through the roof. Right. It was just with such respect and, uh, you know, just unbelievable talent. Beautiful. Thank you. And Matt, you probably out of the group here were the person who spent the most time with John in the studio collaborating together, you know, bringing amazing songs to fruition that were the that were the brain children or the brainchilds of, of the three of you. How do you think John Barnes should be remembered? Well, of course, uh, he should be recognized for the amazing talent and creative individual he was. But he also had an incredibly, uh, an incredible degree of warmth and humor. Uh, I don't think people appreciate. He he also was a, an extremely conscientious, spiritual person. He didn't go uh, into uh, depth speaking about that. He, he kind of held that inside. But that was part of what made him have this this beautiful outside. That when you interacted with him, you 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 enjoyed him as the person that he was. Uh, he there was no false pretense. He he was honest and sincere, and he would very often let you know how he felt about something. But that was what was so so incredibly great about him is you, you were talking to a real person. And I think that's the thing that Michael um, recognized in him. And he will, wherever he is and wherever he goes, uh, I, I know that he will be uh, uh, warmly appreciated for all of those qualities uh, that he had and how he conducted himself. Uh, while while he was here, uh, for the short time that you know he was on on the earth, and and for the the great happiness that he brought to so many people through his creative ability. Beautifully said. I, I love those thoughts. Thank you so much, guys, for for not only those thoughts, but also being able to come together today as a group to remember the great man that John Barnes is, the great musician. Uh, that he is the incredible work that he did with Michael that will last for eternity. People get to enjoy that for generations to come, and he gets to continue to bring joy and hope and happiness to to all those listeners in the future. I know how much happiness he's brought to my life. So thank you so much. I, I, I'm just so grateful that we could all be here together to talk about yes. John. Thank you, Jamin. I think it's great of you guys to do a shout-out to John. I think it's awesome. Yes. Very, very well deserved. Oh, it's the least the least we could do. least we could do. Look, just before we wrap up as well, I'm sure listeners would have loved hearing from each of you. And uh, we love giving listeners a chance to hear about where they can connect with you online. So, so Brad Sunderberg, your seminars, your incredible seminars, they're kicking off again. Can you give listeners a bit of a, a preview of what's to come and where people can find you online? Sure. Yeah, we're going to, uh, we'll be in Copenhagen, uh, May 13th and 14th. And I haven't announced it yet, but we're going to do a quick little pop-up in, I shouldn't even say it because it's not 100% confirmed, but uh, <laughs> we're planning on doing a really quick little pop-up in Stockholm that same weekend. And then we'll be in LA for the big one, June 24th, 25th, and 26th. Uh, we've got uh, some really cool, well, we've got a whole day with Matt Forger. Matt Forger wow. is going to be with us digging deep into Thriller Captain EO, bad, on and on and on. And then Matt has a really cool talk that he does at the very end of the day. Absolutely not to be missed. 
and then we'll do my thing the the next day. And then on Sunday, the 26th, we've got uh, Steve Picaro lined up, Brian Vibberts, and uh, still working on a couple other little surprises. So it's going to be a, a packed weekend. we got some other stuff coming up later in the summer. And as far as finding me anywhere else, we've actually, we've actually launched a TikTok account. I'm kind of uh, not embarrassed. People seem to really enjoy it. <laughs> and my daughter and I have just been banging out a lot of Michael Jackson TikToks over the past few weeks. And, uh, and then, of course, Facebook, Instagram, uh, all the usual suspects. Uh, just look for In the Studio with MJ. Oh, that's brilliant. What a great, great uh, thing you offer the community. I mean, incredible. And I hope you do get to come back to Australia one day because I finally want to go see In the Studio with MJ. You have to. We'll, we'll, we'll meet up. Let's do it. Okay. Now, Brad and Matt, I know you guys are a little bit more private online, but do you guys have websites or something fans can go and connect with your, your work and see what you're up to? I got a, a couple of events coming up. I'm going to Paris next week um, to do a seminar at the Abbey Road Institute. I'll bring Michael Prince with me. That's on uh, the 15th. And then we do two MJ seminars, uh, Making History with MJ on the 16th. Then I'm doing uh, Cologne on the 25th and 26th of june so if you're in if you're in europe go see buxer on on that weekend that if, if you're, you're in, in la US, go see some, uh, yeah. come, come see me yeah <laughs> we've <laughs> got two far, continents covered as far as <laughs> as far as uh reaching me or anything just if it's okay with you brad sunberg i, I always <laughs> like it better when it goes through you and then you can get all of me Ah, nice. So, I'll, yeah, that's that's fine. I'll I'll be the gatekeeper. Thank you. <laughs> and, and Matt Forger, do you have a a website or social media that fans can uh, contact you on? Unfortunately, or fortunately for me, I uh, have taken myself off of uh, social media because of just time constraints of of uh, other things that I have to deal with and our priorities in my life at this moment. But uh, you can reach me through a website called Studio Expresso, which is uh, Clarice is the woman who runs the Studio Expresso uh, website. Clarice is great. I love Clarice. Cl- Cl- yes, Clarice. Yeah. We all know Clarice. And the other one, of course, is Brad Sunberg in, uh, in the studio. But uh, my life is very busy, and, and, and it's a lot of uh, family uh, and personal things that, that occupy my time. I still love working with music. I am so blessed to be able to work uh, with music uh, because of the amazing uh, healing properties and the, the, the health benefits that good music uh, can bring to everyone. So, you know, I, I thoroughly uh, just want to say uh, use music, good music, for helping yourself feel good, uh, especially in these trying uh, times and these troubled times that we go through. Music is is it's so incredibly powerful, and this is something that uh, Michael has only made more apparent uh, with the music that he has created. So, uh, just like he says in his song uh, "Man in the Mirror," uh, if you want to make the world a better place, uh, start with uh, the man in the mirror. Oh, right. that's absolutely right. beautiful! I love it. Wonderful thoughts. Matt, Matt gets an MJ quote in. Doggone it. Nice job. <laughs> you know what, Matt? I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because out of the three of you guys, you know, you're the only one who hasn't done an MJ cast special yet. And I'm thinking we're coming up to our 150th episode. 
What do you reckon? Come on, man. Well, maybe maybe we'll have to uh, talk about uh, making arrangements to do one. Oh, okay. I'm sure I'm, our audience. I'm, is I'm be not excited. objecting whatsoever. Let's let's talk. <laughs> Sounds great. So wait a minute. I, wait, I was number fifteen. Buxer was one hundred, and and Forger's going to be one five zero. Look, I'm That's sorry, man. Right. I made Magic numbers. I, I I was back in the log cabin days, and now now you're getting the big hitters. So, Sumbert, what 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 was the date of that show? How long ago was that? I don't, I don't know. It was like it was like 1994. I don't know. It was a long time <laughs> ago, around the time of the history album. Um, <laughs> no, no, seriously, we we didn't think we would get this far into it. You know, we didn't think we'd be at 140. No, kudos to episodes. you guys, man. Yeah, I'm blown away <laughs> yeah. that it, it, when I did it. It was. It wasn't that long ago, and it was episode one hundred. And you've done fifty episodes since. Then. Since then, that's exactly it. That's crazy. We feel a, a great sense of urgency, you know, to talk to collaborators because you know we've talked. Oh, here we go. We've talked because we're, we're all getting old. Well, you know, I didn't want to put it that way. I mean, you guys didn't need one toilet break during the show, so come on, you're not doing too bad. <laughs> but seriously, like we often talk about how much the estate aren't you know, the Michael Jackson estate aren't really capturing all these stories. And so for you, Brad, to do what you do with the seminar and what we do with the MJ cast, we feel kind of a sense of urgency to capture these stories. You know? No, I, I agree completely. And I, I I'm, I'm in, I'm in the same boat. I, I love, uh, uh, grabbing these people and having them share their stories. We're doing the best job we can to record. Well, the other, it. the other thing it's like, you know, it's not just John, but you know, we've lost Ricky Lawson, we've lost mm-hmm. David Williams. You know, it's like life is life is very thin. It's short. You know, it's like you. It's not just a matter of keeping memories fresh. It's just a matter of people. They they things happen. So it's right. a, I think it's a huge thing that you guys are all doing in capturing the stuff. For you know, Michael would say, you know, we're making history. That's how he would put it. It's this right. is so important. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Well, listeners, if you want to connect further with the MJ Cast, you can find us at the MJ Cast on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, we are a podcast. We love to be listened to as a podcast primarily. So you can find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. We are also on YouTube. If you want to connect with us through email, you can email us at the MJ Cast at iCloud.com. We absolutely love hearing from our listeners. Please rate and review the show. That helps us immensely on those platforms. But until next time, thank you so much for joining us to remember the amazing John Barnes. And for everyone out there, keep Michaeling. He wanted to do something from South Africa and it would get out all over the world. He could want to do something with some Chinese people. It would get out. I mean, there's, it's, I just miss that. There's not a lot of artists who are that open 
to exploring and participating and giving. I just, I miss that. 